Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for that reading, David. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Shelby today. They are doing a bake through the Bible thing in Lent. And Kelly and the kids made the first cracker thing last night that sort of comes with the at-home lesson. And it was surprisingly good. I was like, (laughs) I was uh, skeptical. For those of you who remember, I guess, the last time we went through the parables, I got to preach on the the kingdom of heaven being uh, like a baker who hides a little bit of leaven in the loaf. And then I spent 15 minutes explaining why I make the best bread in Glenwood. So you can see my skepticism about this. Um, So we went from the transfigure, well, we went from the Sermon on the Mount and our journey through Matthew to the transfiguration where we saw that Jesus was proclaimed as God's son, the one whom he loved, um, listened to him. And then we jumped back to the temptation for the first Sunday in Lent, this journey to the cross, to see that conflict has been imbued in this from the beginning, is that Christ goes out to deal with the sin, uh, devil and darkness and claims about what his identity might be in the world. And so today we jump forward all the way to the 20th, chapter of Matthew. It's a little bit of a Bible aerobics going back and forth if you're flipping the pages. We're all in Matthew, um, but what we're going to do um, for the next five weeks is walk through the parables that lead us to the cross. And these parables are, are, have a sharpness to them that aren't in Jesus' early parables. They're, they're very clearly sort of parables of judgment or confounding. The last one, the sheep and the goats. Um, and so we're going to walk through these as we go towards the cross, keeping in mind the context around it. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. But as we walk through these parables, the, the phrase that's on the back of the bulletin today, I hope, can stick out for us. You cannot conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. This is from a Graham Greene novel that I have not read. So in context, I may not know exactly what he's referring to. But out of context, uh, compared with these passages, there's this appalling strangeness to the mercy of God as we walk through these parables and passages. And one of the problems, I think, is that they've become neutered to us in their familiarity. And and, and I say this often, but that familiarity doesn't breed contempt. Familiarity breeds infamiliarity, and that's what breeds contempt, is that we think we know them when, in fact, we don't. And so we have contempt for them. Now, Kelly's reading through the Gospel of Matthew in the same Bible that we're using for Wednesday morning prayer. And, and Kelly's been a faithful churchgoer and has read through the Bible and this, that, and the other. But she got to the one, and I think we'll do it, where the guy is wearing the wrong clothes after the wedding banquet, and he is cast out to the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Kelly goes, that's a little intense. Now, for me, having heard that story my whole life and growing up in the church, it's, it's not something I remember. Oh, it gathers people from other places. It's fine. It's this. It becomes sort of a kind story. It's the sharpness of there's a guy here, and he's not wearing the right clothes. Send him to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which we take in the Gospel of Matthew synonymous with hell. You cannot conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. 
that my goal as we go through these sort of individual parables along the way that we can we can stick with this what is it about the appalling strangeness of the mercy of god and i believe we'll see it in today's text um and today's might be the one that that might be the um most obvious it might be the least obvious of them um, I think they'll get more obvious as we go on that there is an appalling strangeness to the mercy of God that we've become way too familiar with. And so today's parable, you might say, is about generosity. Um, and you'd be missing half the point, per se. But one of the things I said as we do this, as we walk towards the cross, to keep in context where we are in Matthew's gospel. Holy Week hasn't happened yet. Holy Week is in the next chapter, or, or sorry, Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week. And so this will be the only one that takes place outside of Jerusalem. The other ones will be inside. Um, and I say that because as they get sharper, these parables, um, there's a common joke I'm sure we've all heard that uh, if you think Jesus goes around and tells people to be kind and to love their enemies and, and just sort of be good citizens, give to Caesar what is Caesar, nobody kills you for that. Um, but I think if you're really listening to these parables, particularly as he goes to Jerusalem and the teaching he's giving, you'll become clear that like, oh yeah, I could understand why you'd kill this guy. Um, there's a sharpness to them that makes you go, he's throwing off what is all common to us, what is normal to us. What, what is, and, and if you live as a Jew in this region or as a, as a Gentile to some degree, this appalling strangeness of the mercy of God is, is in some sense a threat to the world as it is. And so the context surrounding this one is the story of the rich young ruler. And what's noticeable about that and how it connects to today's story is that the rich young ruler says, good teacher, um, how do I inherit in her life? And Jesus responds to who is good. There's only one whom is good. This is the same good or generous, depending on which translation you have, that ends this parable. Are you envious or do you have an evil eye because I am generous? There's a word connection there. But what happens is, is the, the rich young ruler, and, and, and in this society, to be rich is to be blessed. I say that like it's not common in our society. I shouldn't, shouldn't say, you know, in the first century, they were dumb enough to think rich people were blessed. Like, we don't do the exact same thing. Um, uh, but that was very common here, is that you would say this person's living according to the law. That's why they've been blessed with what God has done for them. And so when he walks away sad and Peter asks about how hard it is to get into the, or, um, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And the disciples said, Jesus said to the disciple, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the needle of an eye than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When they, the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? If rich people are the blessed example that you hold out in your mind, it's a very important question to ask. If they can't get in, who then can get in. But the next question that Peter asks is about, okay, so we've left much to follow you. What do we get here? And Christ offers them this, this vision of them on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and that nobody who has left anything for his sake will not uh, receive it a hundred times, because many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Before this parable, and this is where chapters and verse throws it off. This parable ends with the teaching, too, that so the last will be first and the first will be last. 
that this is the exact same teaching that mirrors both sides of this. And so there's a bit of a, what is this 12 thrones thing like? They think they're there early. They think that they're going to be the ones to receive it. And before we move into the parable itself, the following, what follows that, that last declaration that so the last will be first and the first will be last, is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And he, again, he tells them that he will suffer many things. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Instantly after this, he tells them about the time in which he will be crucified. The last thing that I think is sort of intimately connected to this story is the mothers of the sons of Zebedee comes and asks a favor that her two boys may sit on the right and the left of Jesus when he comes in his glory. Um, And Jesus says, you know, you can't drink of that cup. Well, they think they can. And those places have already been prepared. Obviously, if we're thinking about what Jesus is referring to here as the cross, the two criminals crucified on his right and left, that has already been prepared before time. But what James's mother, or the sons of Zebedee's uh, mother's question is, is greatest. They want to be nearest Jesus in that spot. And I think it's important that it doesn't seem like she was there when he gave this parable. Um, it's almost like she came a week late. They're like, no, no, don't ask that now, um, because we've already received uh, teaching that that's way. And so there's this other teaching about greatness. Jesus ends that one with whoever must be first must be your slave, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which I think is one of the most important teachings in the Gospel of Matthew that we're skipping this year, because um, that's what I do. Um, So going back to this parable, so the last will be first and the first will be last. That brackets both sides of this. And it begins with the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. This inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven is one of the major themes of the Gospel of Matthew, and so much so in the other four Gospels, too, is that there's an inbreaking thing that's happening in what Christ comes into the world. And what he does is he's proclaiming the inbreaking of this kingdom. And so much so that those who are near to him can begin to see it. Going back to our series through the Beatitudes, if you think about blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven, all these, is that you begin to see what the kingdom of heaven is like the closer you get to Jesus, and you begin to see it taking root in the world. As I've tried to be clear, it's not a big root. But because of what Christ has done, we can begin to see the changes. And the church, us gathered here, are meant to be a foreplace of what that ground, the kingdom of heaven, is like. And I think as we go through the parable, we'll realize there's some reassessing that needs to happen. Um, At least for me, there was, as I go, okay, so the church is the foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. I think I've got that down. Uh, Let me hear what the kingdom of heaven is like is like a landowner who went out, and then I go, okay, I know this parable, but I don't. Um, It's that familiarity and infamiliarity meeting here. And so the first thing I want to say is that who, let's see, do I want to start there? There's a bit of a a temptation when we read this parable, and as we heard it once, I'm going to tell it a second time um, with a contemporary sort of example about my friends Bob and Jim. Um, 
but the, the idea is, is, is it Jews versus Christians, which I think is a, an interesting way of thinking about this parable. It's, it's the Jews who get there early, the Christians who come later. I think there's another question of whether it's super apostles or the apostles who have just been promised the 12 thrones holding out power over the Christians who come later. Is it Jews versus Gentiles within the church that they're not as, as fully invested as we are? We've been here longer. Is it just the human nature um, that we've been invested in this longer? Um, and I think we can hold out all those, but I think when you really listen to the parable slowly again, it becomes, although those are options, there's a bit of surgery that happens to your own soul as you listen to it. It's not quite clear that it really matters if it's about any of these other contexts as much as about what's going on with you as you hear these things. It's one last important observation that the vineyard is often conceived as the chosen people of God, Israel, throughout the, the Old Testament. And so th- when you listen to this, you can hear him as inviting them into his place, inviting him into there. So Bob and Jim, uh, two friends of mine, not real friends, but um, Bob and Jim, they both uh, go to the Home Depot regularly on the weekends um, to sort of uh, receive extra work. They stand out front, some guy hires them, I'll give you X money for this, this, that, and the other. Jim actually has no job. Jim relies on this. So Jim gets there at 6 a.m. every day that he can. Saturday's a good day for Jim because it's the day that men are off. And so Jim is there at 6 a.m. on Saturday. And this good master comes up and says, you know, I'll give you about $200 to work for me today. From the sun up, sundown, we're going to go out to my garden, my vineyard, and we're going to harvest, right? It's time for harvest, and you're going to go harvest with me. So Jim says $200 is exactly reasonable for this, this work. I will go and do $200 worth of work. Now, it's interesting to think about these early risers perhaps as needing the money the most, They're the most competent, the most aware, the most in need, the ones who get out there. They're the go-getters. 6 a.m., Jim is at the Home Depot ready for work because he depends on it. Now, Bob's like me. Bob doesn't like to get up that early. Bob also has a regular job. It's not a great job, but he's got a job. So he gets there around 9 a.m. and sees if there's any work. He's not super uh, motivated, but he's, he's, a, he's a good guy, and he's like, I can make a little bit more money for my family on Saturday. Why, why don't I go down to the Home Depot and stand out there too? Same guy comes up. Bob doesn't know it, but Bob gets in his truck, goes off to work, and he tells him, he said, I'll pay you what's fair. And Bob going, I didn't, what was I going to do today? There's no college football. Um, baseball season hasn't started yet. Um, NASCAR's off. Yeah, I'll get in the car too. So if what's fair sounds fair, I'll go. So Bob gets in the car, and he goes off, and Jim's there. Now, Bob and Jim are working in the vineyard, and, and Bob says to Jim, hey, uh, what, is, what did he say he was going to pay you? And Jim goes, well, it's $200. Bob goes, okay, well, it's about, you know, for the amount of time I work getting here, hired by him around nine, that'll be like 160 That's good, good for a day's work. That's better than not having money at all. And so they're working, and as the harvest is getting near... Um, and then you could imagine, perhaps, that there's a weather report out there that, like, these grapes need to be harvested by tomorrow or the next day. So the landlord goes out again, and he brings more workers at noon. And, and Bob and Jim are still working very hard, and they're like, well, wh- I wonder what they're going to get paid. And so they ask, too, what are you guys getting paid? Bob says, 
well, I think 160, and Jim says 200. That's what he gave me at the start of the day. And they go, well, you know, if you got there at noon to the Home Depot, well, you'd probably get hired by me if I needed help because I don't get there that early either. But the people who really need help in projects, who have money to pay, they're already gone, or, or they've already picked their people. But you're still getting with the first sort of person. And then at 3, he does it again. More workers show up, same thing throughout the thing. I mean, this is human tendency, is that, hey, what is the person who knows what this guy pays is going to pay us? And then you trickle it down, doing the math, to go, oh, 40. 40 is not bad, because this was what is offered here, a fair wage. Then at 5 o'clock, more people show up. There's only an hour of work left, and Bob and Jim are like, this guy is insane. Um, and not only that, the people who show up at 5 or 6 um, don't look great. They don't work well. Some of them might have um, a disability that held them back from getting started that day. Some of them might be alcoholics or drug addicts that were merely like, let's go stand in front of the Home Depot. And, and the landowner walks up and says, hey, you want to come work for me? And they're like, another six-pack, why not? Um, and so they hop in the truck too. Now, this is only an hour left in the time of work. And in, in the Old Testament, there's this teaching that you can't hold somebody's wages for a day till the next day. Um, so you're going to pay them that night. And so as the sun sets, Bob and Jim and all of them gather around. They, they, they sort of get to quitting time, and they are ready to get paid. And what happens is, is the landowner um, gives, has the people, he tells the firman, when evening comes, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. So, the people who shouldn't have, have really gotten a job at all that day come up first, and they get $200. Now, one of them might be thinking this is an error, but I, the faster I get out of the vineyard, the faster this doesn't work. But then it becomes clear that they're all getting $200, and this is human nature that we would talk about these things. I mean, you might think, well, I would never tell anybody what it got paid. Well, the five people next to you will, so... Um, uh, and then they're leaving, and they're talking about the $200 they've received. So the people who got hired at 3 are like, well, then I should get like uh, $230, $250. Um, I should get a little bit more, and they get $200. They're a little bit upset, but they're like, you know, that's more than I expected to get today, so I'll take it. Noon, probably the same thing, a little bit more like, you know, I was here during the hottest part of the day, um, uh, I got to the Home Depot early by my standards um, and got a job. Now, Bob, Bob goes up. He, it's, uh, he got there at 9. Bob gets his, and he's um, pretty upset. And Jim gets his, and it's all 200. And he, he goes to Jim because he knows Jim's a little bit of a... Um, Jim knows what he's worth. He was there at 6 a.m. He does this all the time. So Bob, being smart, goes to Jim and says, you know, you should really complain about this. Because Bob doesn't want to complain about it because he knows that he already got more than he deserved. But if he can get somebody from the first group to go complain about it, then he's like, yeah, me too. I got here early. Bob is smart. Um, so Bob gets Jim fired up. And Jim goes to the landowner of the state and says, what's the deal, man? We got here early. We worked the hardest parts of the day. We made $200, uh, and you paid them $200. This is not fair. You have made us equal to them, is what he says. 
And I think at this moment, with Bob and Jim, hopefully, what is the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God can begin to appear. This is not really right. And my parents, growing up, would always tell me life isn't fair. Just like, okay, but God is. Um, and according to this parable, if God is, is a metaphor in the, in the landowner, then God isn't exactly fair either. And that's a dangerous thing to begin to think about. What's going on in this kingdom that this parable is talking about? That you might have needed it, that you're organized, that you got up early, that you are righteous in so many ways. Even if you're like a Bob, like I am, you still got there during the workday start, nine to five. And you didn't see the fairness come out in the end. You spent your day working hard, doing math on what you were going to get and how you were going to spend it. But one generous act by the landowner sort of overthrows your whole economy of self at that moment. You were fine making 150, but when you find out somebody who works an hour gets 200 and you're given a $60 raise, you begin to feel some rage. You begin to say, this isn't fair. This isn't even. And, and going back to the kinds of people, you've made me equal with people who can't even show up to, their, to the thing they need to do to feed themselves at the right time. Missing it by eight hours. This is not like, well, I was 20 minutes late. This is missing it by almost the whole work day. And what the landowner says to him is, am I being unfair to you, friend? And the Greek here for friend is, um, am I being unfair to you, buddy? Um, pal? Dude? <laughs> Didn't you agree to work for $200? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the ones the last, the hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do with my money? what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So we'll end the story with Bob and Jim there, that this is sort of where it ends here. I do want to say that we used to go to a church that did children's sermons, and I gave two, and they went so terribly I quit. Um, and then Kelly started giving them, but I always had occasionally evidence on why I shouldn't give children's sermon. And so in this one, I'd say, all oh, the kids come up to the front. You got here first, you get a candy bar. The rest of you remember God is more generous than I am, um, <laughs> and that he would give the first and the last candy bar. See, that would, that would stick in their mind. The, the, the last, yeah, the last. Uh, that would stick in their mind. They would definitely go, well, I don't like Pastor Matt, and I do appreciate a God who's more generous than that. Um, and that was evidence why I shouldn't be doing that job. And most people, when I told that story, they were like, he is terrible. Um, he should not. And I never got pressure to do it after I started using those uh, illustrations. Kelly was really good at it, though. Um, but what the day ended in, in the parable, is this notion of bookkeeping. What is even? even? What is good? What, are, what is the way in which the world should go? And there's a question in this that I made up an answer to on why the vineyard owner keeps going out and gathering people. 
We don't know that the harvest is imminent. These are details that we always read into these parables, but it's not quite clear that they were comparing each other, although that seems like human nature. But the vineyard owner keeps going out and gathering more people in. As we go through the next parables on the way to the cross, it becomes clear that God, as he tells stories about what this kingdom is like, is an intense gatherer. He wants to bring people in. Five o'clock, little bit work left to do. Come on. Uh, Matt, at nine, you're still lazy, but you can work too. Um, that God will gather people in throughout the day. And I think it's worth paying attention to their objection too. That you have made us equal. I think that's part of the real rub with the story is that you've made us equal with other people. It's almost like if at the end of the day he gave them 180 and said, hey, I'm not, the, I'm not really a good landowner. Like, here's 180. I said 200. Um, it, you didn't work that hard. There's still some grapes. Here's 180. And everybody else got the trickle-down effect of that. You would prefer that system in many ways to the system that says everybody gets 200. If the guy who came the last hour gets 10 and I get 180, that seems more fair. At least you didn't make me equal with the person who works only an hour. You have made us equal with them. And now I hope we're getting to the point where what, what historical context you want to read this in the first century begins to fade away. Because part of what then the church is going to do as being a signpost of the kingdom here on earth is to say that you got here late, And you didn't, um, in a way that almost seems incompetent, which I think people hearing this parable would have thought, at 5 a.m. you got hired. And you're going to get the same reward and gift that those who have been here the whole time. Now we can see why you might be upset at somebody like this. Or call it the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. And as Emily read for us, that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, I often take to mean like he'll, he'll, he'll make fairness fairer. Um, he'll make fairness great again. Um, and instead, what it actually means is that he's um, generous in a way that may not add up in my economy. He may open doors that I think should be closed. He may do things that confound that nature. And this is a real troublesome thing for a pastor. Because sometimes you think, maybe I should, I should have some, some little bit better here. And the answer is, most likely not. And the problem is you have to study and teach that and stand up in front of people and say, there is no economy like that in this parable. The parable says that those who come at the master's call are the ones who receive the same pay. And what I want to finish with is, is the two questions he asked, just to make some observations about that. And I think one has to do with divine sovereignty, and one has to do with um, human understanding, our anthropology as people. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? This is the first thing that's obviously true for the landowner, but you can still complain about it. 
I was talking to my dad this week, and, and he has this belief that everybody, when they die, they'll stand before God and be offered one last chance to sort of, and he says, I know it's not biblical, I know it's not there, but that's what I believe. And I told him, and it relates to this parable, because he could have ended this parable with, and this is why the door from hell is locked from the other side. We often think as, as the door between heaven and hell is locked on God's side, when in fact, in the, in the nature of this parable, the door between heaven and hell is locked from the, the people who can't live in the generous fear of God's side. The people who want fair, who want accountab- accountability, who want all the numbers to add up. And that was what I told him. I said, that might be a better way to think about that as I was thinking about this passage, is to say that it's why you exclude yourself from this reality. I can't stand that those who came at 5 got what I got at 6 a.m. You lock yourself out. Go ahead and leave. And, and one of the things is we go through these parables, and I hate it. I mean, I, I, when I read this, I was like, there's going to be an exception. I know it. Is that people are often removed from the party. They get in, and for some reason, they can't stand it is what happens. Not that these are parables about how to get into the party. I would have preferred that because I'd go, okay, checklist. I got action. I'll get there at nine, Um, maybe six if we're talking about heaven and hell here. But what actually they're about is can you tolerate the strange and appalling mercy of God? And I will say that this question leaves open that God has the right to stamp out injustice. That God may say that this is not allowed. That these behaviors aren't included. Because what's the question? Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? What this question protects, I think most importantly, aside um, from keeping God God, is the freedom of God as well. God has the right to determine these standards. And so as we read in other portions of the New Testament that these people shall not inherit the kingdom, that this may not happen, is that God has the right to do that. The problem is us thinking we have the right to tell God what to do. And that's where the real rub is. Now there's a great Jewish parable. This is a common parable at this time. Jesus didn't invent this parable. But I love this example of that a rabbi comes late and he is rewarded the the same amount as the people came early. And the explanation is he did more work in two hours than you did all day. And now I'm with Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson going like, yeah, that makes sense. Now this, this parable makes complete sense. They, they had more energy. They worked harder. They probably came back from two jobs they already did that day. And that's why they were hanging out at the Home Depot at five. Um, and that's not open to us. And and Luther has this phrase that that God deals with us primarily by grace instead of law. The thing is, if God were dealing with us by law, all this could add up. There would be no need for Jesus. You'd say, okay, take this step, add this, do this, multiply this, up, you're out. Has anybody seen The Good Place on uh, TV? Yeah, similar to that is, well, did your good deeds add up enough? Okay. Um, and it's, it's shocking because what this parable reveals to, to some of us is that we might actually prefer it that way. And I'll tell you, if, as I've done work with um, 
uh, as my upper middle class upbringing would say, this is not what I'm trying to say, with the lowest of lows and in and, and, uh, intense homelessness and this, that, and the other, um, the, the human sin of Adam, we want accountability, is just as alive there as it is in the boardroom. This, we, we ran this house where people could come and cook and clean. We provided the food, the house, the electricity, my time to sort of regulate fights. And people would come to me and they'd say, you know, that guy, he's a real bum. It's like, you're in a house that's free, like, from my perspective. And so you might think, well, on the bottom end of this, it's not like that. This goes through the whole nature of human relations. And I, I think this is one of the as a side note, I need to end, that one of the bad things in the modern world is that we create people without sin. To say that, oh, this, this group of people is sinless. That whatever they have done must have come as a result of different factors or different equations or this, that, and the other is to exempt them from what is good news. That regardless of what you've done, God's relationship to you is one of grace if you move into his kingdom, if you come to his vineyard. If you think you're fine, if you have no need and no lack, you begin to end up in the place that says, I'd rather not be in that party. I'd rather not be with that people. That scorekeeping ruins it all. The second question, or are you envious because I am generous? This one might hit the heart a little bit more. Are, and this in, in the Greek is, do you have an evil eye because I am good? Um, are you envious because I am generous? This is a deep challenge for me. I think for most of us who have families that we're still friends with, we see it all the time. We see that this is not fair. We see that our parents can reply to, to one kid who, um, try to keep this, see, now it's like, I'm mad about some of these things. Um, <laughs> Uh, my parents were here last Sunday, so let me pick one easy example. Uh, racked up a bunch of credit card debt and gets a loan to get out of it, and I've never racked up credit card debt, um, mainly thanks to Kelly. But, um, uh, and then to be mad, well, where's my money? You did, you're doing fine. What do you need? And if you don't, you can see the, the connections to that prodigal son story. All I have is yours. Like, what are you doing these deals for? I mean, it's one, been one of the things that I've been trying to reassure my parents is that they've like, well, we tried to be even and be fair. And I was like, it totally wasn't. But that's the way it's supposed to be. What is it? It's, it totally wasn't. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It can't be. Because when you're talking about love and grace and generosity, which we can barely experience, this goes back to that teaching, even if you are evil, can good gifts gifts? If we can barely mirror that ourselves, imagine how much more that's alive for God. It's not going to be fair and even. As adults, I can accept that begrudgingly. In the world, we see this too. Um, I have friends in pastoring. Um, how bad do I want to make myself look is the question I have right now. Um, I would think, yeah. <laughs> now everybody's like, he's a fine pastor, but I don't want to be his friend. Um, uh, that I think are much, um, much less uh, 
interesting, creative, accomplished, this, whatever you want to say about them, that I look at their work and I'm like, you're at this pinnacle and I got the church that was 15 people uh, five years ago. Like, what did I do wrong? Like, wh- how is this fair in this world? Um, and they're great people, don't get me wrong. I mean, and they, they're, when you look like that, it's like they're accomplishing other things that I'm not and whatever. But like, you can, you can do this yourselves. I tell you this story so you don't think about me. I tell you these stories so you think about yourself. Where am I like that? Um, so in throwing myself under the bus, I'm hoping you go, oh, I have places like that. If it's just me throwing myself under the bus, I need to stop doing this. Um, And so that is part of the challenge of, are you envious because I am generous? Do we look with evil upon because people are good, that God is giving out good gifts? Do we want to exclude ourselves because God, and this is, I think, the hardest challenge, is to say that God might be more generous on that last day than we are. Because if you're reading this parable slowly, when evening comes is, is pretty a thinly veiled reference to when the last judgment comes. And when the last judgment comes, if God's like, well done, my good and faithful servant, and you're like, them? That's the challenge. Do we look with evil because God is generous? We like accounting often. And it goes through the full hierarchy of needs and people and space. And we want to know that things are being dealt with by law. And what these parables are going to reveal to us is that things are actually being dealt with by grace. And it's a grace that we perhaps cannot stand. Before I, right before I got up here, I remembered a great quote from Rowan Williams um, that I don't have printed out anywhere, and I'm sure it'll come up again. Um, But he said, self-dependence in these teachings. Um, God provokes crisis to destroy our self-deceiving reliance on law, our dependence on what we as individuals can make and sustain, or what we as societies can administer for our own unchallenged interests, or self-deceiving reliance on law. And what he says in a sentence that I can never forget at the end of this passage is self-dependence in the face of this God is revealed as a mechanism of self-destruction. And to cling to it in the face of God's invitation to trust is a thinly veiled self-hatred. To cling to our self-dependence in the face of the anarchic mercy of God is to trust in something that is a thinly veiled safe hatred. Because on that day, the last will be first and the first will be last. Let us pray. God, through these parables that we hear from your son Jesus, May we begin to hear and see what your kingdom is like. To let go of our calculators of accounting. To try and make sure it all adds up in our own ways. But instead to trust in your grace. 
And it is a grace that doesn't work on reward, but one that raises the dead. And so too in us, may you do the work of raising us from our own self-dependence that leads to our own self-destruction but that we would cling to your grace and mercy. No matter how long we feel like we've been on the vineyard, you have a right to do with what is yours. And so too, we ask to learn, to see not with the evil eye, but to accept your generous beyond our expectations.